Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for being our Lord, our Savior, the gracious, merciful, loving God that you are. Lord, I, I, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the time of just coming together as a church body, uh, nay, a church family. Um, Lord, we love one another and just enjoy being together and under the... the um, the auspices of Calvary Bible Church and and being a part of this local believing body. And Father, I pray that our our worship has been pleasing to you, that it has brought you joy even. And Father, now as we open up your word and worship you from your word, I, I pray that you would help us to gain understanding and insight and application We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit, the Holy Spirit inside of us. Your spirit infused word. And Lord, uh, may uh, our learning and gaining knowledge and I pray wisdom would draw us closer in our relationship with you and your son. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. You can turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We will be moving on to verses 2 and 3, but we'll go ahead and read this uh, little chunk here between verses 1 and 5 because it's really all part of the same prayer that Paul is praying. Paul says this, 2 Thessalonians, beginning in chapter 3. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing And will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Some early Native American tribes had a unique practice of training up some of their young men. On the night of a boy's 13th birthday, after learning many life skills over the years, he was put to one final test. On a moonless evening, he was placed in a dense, dark forest to spend the entire night alone. Until then, he had never been away from the security of his family and the tribe. But on this night, he was blindfolded and taken several miles away And when he took off the blindfold, he was in the middle of a thick woods and, frankly, was usually terrified. Sights and sounds, rustling of of bushes or the wind kind of whistling through the trees, branches, twigs snapping, animals calling, kept him on edge and wondering how he might make it through the night. After what seemed like an eternity, <laughs> I just thought, man, if I, if I sent some of my 
my kiddos out there, I'm like, whoa, I don't know what would happen, you know, in this digital age and whatnot, right? <sighs> what it might have seemed like an eternity, dawn broke and the first rays of sunlight entered the interior of the forest and looking around, the, the boy then sees trees and foliage and, huh, even the outline of a path. <clears throat> and then to his utter astonishment, he beheld the figure of a man standing just a few feet away, armed with a bow and arrow. It was his father. He had been there all night long. And I like this story because it illustrates how life around us can be scary, uncertain, nerve-wracking, tie your stomach in knots, maybe even terrify us. And yet for us as believers, our Heavenly Father faithfully keeps watch over us. He protects us and He is ready to rescue us if necessary. But it also doesn't preclude our own responsibilities as well. You'll see what I mean as we move through our passage today. And so again, here we find ourselves at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, where Paul now asks for prayer for his ministry companions, and then offers one on his own behalf, uh, on his own on behalf of the Thessalonian believers. So last week, we just got into verse 1. We had a message entitled, Evangelism to the Glory of God, in which Paul asked the Thessalonians to pray for he and his traveling companions, that the gospel message they are preaching will do what? It'll spread. It'll spread even rapidly and be glorified, just as was the case when Paul brought that same word to Thessalonica. And we use that as kind of a jumping off place to talk about some of the practical aspects of evangelism for us today, and we put them into three groupings. We talked about the message, what the gospel message actually is. We talked about a method for getting that gospel message out, and, and the fact that pri- primarily for most of us, it'll have to do with relationships. We call it relational evangelism. The, the people that you meet, that you know, that are your neighbors, that are your friends, even your family members. And then we talked about, lastly, the means and those things that are there to help in the process, including things like God's grace, the Holy Spirit, even prayer. So now we move on to verses 2 to 3 and Paul's prayer request to a faithful Lord that he and his gospel companions, again, along with the Thessalonians, will be rescued and even strengthened and protected so let's look at the at this first one that god will indeed rescue rescue he says that we will be rescued the greek word there literally means to draw and it carries with it the idea of of drawing someone to themselves as they are being pulled away from danger Right. You you uh, see that somebody is uh, uh, having trouble keeping their head above water and you reach down and you grab hold of them and pull them up out of the water to yourself. That's what this this word rescue 
means they're being pulled away from danger. And naturally, we would ask then, well, okay, so what is it we need to be rescued from? And Paul tells us, verse 2, which is a continuation from verse 1, that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men. Perverse from the Greek word autopos, uh, a meaning without, topos meaning place, so literally without place. Or in other words, something that is improper or absurd, even unreasonable. Evil is this word poneros, and it means, well, just that. It means evil, wicked. Paul gives us one more clue about who these men are that he's asking asking to be rescued from. He says, for not all have faith, or literally the faith. And, and this makes sense, too, in the sense that you wouldn't expect believers, you wouldn't expect true Christians to be perverse and evil, though some may be due to some sin in their life or that they are maybe merely professing believers. These perverse and evil men are not converts. In fact, just the opposite. Now, Paul asked for something similar of the brethren in Romans 15, verses 30 to 31, when he says to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. And truth is, Paul had many occasions where he needed to be rescued and where he needed to be rescued from perverse and evil men. On his first missionary journey, jealous people contradicted Paul and they blasphemed God. They persecuted Paul. They drove him out of their district. In Iconium, they, quote, stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren, end quote. This then led to an attempted stoning, which the apostles first escaped from in chapter 14 of the book of Acts, until the region of Lycaonia, and Lystra, and Derbe, where they did stone Paul, and they left him for dead outside the city. His second missionary journey didn't seem to get much better. This found him in Philippi in Acts 16, where he was dragged into the marketplace. He was then beaten with rods, thrown into prison, fastened into the stocks. In Thessalonica, wicked men stirred up a mob until they they left there and they arrived in Berea only to have the same thing happen. There was more persecution in Corinth, followed by Ephesus. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 14, Paul tells of how Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. You might remember in 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26, Paul speaks of his imprisonments. Beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And then in verse 26, in dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers among false brethren. Then in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians in verse 7, he talks about this thorn in his flesh which is identified as a messenger of Satan. I take that to be that it was a person. It was somebody who was just just dogging Paul, just going after him, just relentless, not letting up. And if that wasn't enough, there's his final arrest in Jerusalem as the Jews wanted him dead. 
This is followed by his last uh, journey to Rome to make an appeal before Caesar. And it keeps him in a Roman prison until his execution, all at the hands, again, of perverse and evil men who do not have the faith. I know we think that that we are, you know, starting to endure. Well, it's not that we think. We do. We see it. We know that there's a certain element of persecution out there in the world, certainly, and, and, and closer to home here in the, even the United States. It's here in the United States, as we've said many times, it's not quite what's going on in other parts of the world where Christians are literally uh, being thrown into prison and dying, being killed for their faith. But yes, we see plenty of evil people out there in the world who do not like the Christian message. They are antagonistic to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what's interesting about all of this is the fact that in our passage today, Paul asked them to pray. He asked the Thessalonians to pray for him and his fellow companions. Not only that God's word would spread rapidly and be glorified, but they as evangelists, would be rescued by the Lord from the perverse and evil men who were seeking to harm them and to keep the gospel from spreading. So I'm sitting here doing my study, and I thought, well, so did that happen? Were their prayers answered? Maybe yes and maybe no. I mean, based on those things that I just shared with you, it seems, man, they were, it just like was relentless against Paul. And yet we don't know how things might have been had people not been praying for him. It's hard to imagine things being worse for Paul, but maybe they would have been. Maybe they would have been. We, we just don't know. But get this. Because here's the conclusion that Paul still comes to in light of all of this, and this is rather extraordinary, look at verse 3. What does he say next? But the Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful. That's a tremendous statement by this man who has gone through as much as he has. The perverse evil men without faith are juxtaposed with the Lord who is the epitome of faith and faithfulness. They have no faith while the Lord is altogether faithful. We'll come back to the faithfulness of the Lord in, in, in just a bit. Actually, more towards the end, okay? So, so back to our text where Paul now turns things uh, a bit as he's not actually asking for more prayer for himself. In a sense, he is now actually praying to the Lord on the Thessalonians' behalf. And he is confidently um, confidently telling them about this prayer and how it will be answered. Because he says next, look at uh, verse 3. And he will strengthen. He will strengthen you. Now, since this was Paul's prayer, back in chapter 2, even verse 17, when he asked the Father and the Son to Comfort and strengthen the hearts of the Thessalonians amidst their persecution and their affliction and their suffering. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this one. It's, it's the exact same word here, sterizo, which means to stand. It means to set fast or to 
firmly fix. And no doubt Paul had in mind things more of a spiritual nature, a spiritual strengthening, though a physical one is not out of the question. In other words, sometimes our spiritual or our mental state can greatly affect this, right? Our, our physical being. We see this clearly in the scriptures in Psalm 31 and verse 4. During a time of sin and, and difficulty in his life, David first acknowledges to God that the Lord is his strength in Psalm 31, 4. And then shortly after that, he cries out to him, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted away from grief. My soul and my body also for my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing my strength has failed because of my iniquity and my body has wasted away david acknowledged that there was a very real physical kind of result to to not only his sin but this the different distresses in his life and so along with the spiritual strengthening that i do believe paul had at in mind here, God can also physically strengthen us when we need it. Doesn't mean you turn into Samson, right? Can't, you know, push pillars and stuff, but I think you get the idea. <clears throat> Billy Graham once said this, he said, as an evangelist, I have often felt too far spent to minister from the pulpit to men and women who have filled stadiums to hear a message from the Lord. Yet again and again, my weakness has vanished and my strength has been renewed. I have been filled with God's power, not only in my soul, but physically. And on many occasions, God has become especially real and has sent his unseen angelic visitors to touch my body, to let me be his messenger for heaven, speaking as a dying man to dying men. I, I would wholly concur there, you know, try to get a good night's sleep the night before preaching and being up here. But there are those occasions where something is happening or going on or whatnot. And you get to bed later than you wanted to and you wake up and you're just kind of spent. You're just kind of feeling tired. And you think, oh, Lord. And it's like those are the messages that I think, oh, man, I'm not going to be good for anybody today. And inevitably you get up here and there's something that happens just by the God's grace and the, the message that I thought would be just, you know, fall on, just just would not come out very well, ends up being, you know, something that people then are blessed by or have been encouraged by. And, I, and it tells me, that wasn't me, <laughs> you know. That wasn't me. Because I was nothing good going on in me. That's the Lord's strengthening. Go ahead and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Just a little bit to the right there. You can keep your mark there at uh, our Thessalonians passage. But 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. This is some 16 or so years after 2 Thessalonians. When Paul was recounting to Timothy that Alexander the coppersmith, as we said, had done him much harm. And he says this, 2 Timothy 4.16, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. That's an extraordinary thing too, huh? Uh, verse 17, But the Lord stood with me and 
strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Brock mentioned earlier about that roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, did you notice, though, the purpose of Paul's strengthening and rescuing here? It wasn't so that he could, you know, continue on making just top-of-the-line custom-made tents for people, right? Or, or so he could re- return home and, and say, you know, I'm done. It's time to retire. I'm taking up a hobby. No, it was so he could carry on and fully accomplish his gospel work. That was what he wanted this strengthening for. That is what he wanted to be rescued in order to do. Verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And again, friends, notice that he is not rescued so that he can have his best life now. Or retire to a life of comfort and ease. But no. The rescuing is to bring him into God's heavenly kingdom. If you're going to rescue me, Lord, man, rescue me and send me home. Bring me to your kingdom. There may be suffering in this life, friends. Even up to the point of our deaths. Which was the case for Paul. He did. He suffered right up to the time he died. He was executed. His rescuing... His rescuing didn't come until the Lord brought him home. Thirdly, Paul confidently tells them that the Lord will protect. He will protect the Thessalonian believers. The word there means to watch or keep guard over. And in our text specifically, he tells us it's to to keep uh, to protect us from the evil one. And the actual text says, from the evil. Most translations supply one in italics, the implication being that Satan is the evil one. And yes, indeed, he is. You might be familiar with 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 to 9. It's that one that Brock was referring to earlier. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, does what? prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour but resist him firm in your faith knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world we're all in this together when you're undergoing suffering you're not special we're all suffering to some degree right And we need God's protection. We need his protection specifically from Satan, the devil. Friends, go ahead and turn to Ephesians 6. Brock and I worked this out together so that he would read this passage. And then we'd be able to just talk about it a little bit. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. I I think this is one of those passages that we don't pay enough attention to. We don't remind ourselves enough of this passage. It, it is so, it's so important, so important for us. Because this is where we can see how the Lord rescues and strengthens and protects you from the evil one. And, and, and here's a little hint. You're going to play a part in this. 
Yes, God ultimately is the one by his grace that will do this, that will rescue and strengthen and protect. But in this case, too, he says, there's some things that I want you to do that you need to pay attention to. He says this in verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And, and while Paul has assured us in 2 Thessalonians that God again will strengthen you, at the same time, you're told to be strong. The catch, our strength comes from where? His might. Not your own. We try to, you know, say, oh, I got to pull myself up by the bootstraps and some my strength. And No, this is the strength of His might. And why does Paul tell us that power is perfected in weakness in 2 Corinthians 12. And when I am weak, then I am strong because in our weakness, we are acknowledging our need for him. We are acknowledging we need to rely on God for his grace, for his strength, which he then sufficiently supplies to us. In other words, trust his strength not your own, because we're going to fail, aren't we? Or if we try to get strength from the world or other places, it's, it's just not going to be good enough. He says in verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Stand firm in the Greek means to stand up against, to resist. It's the idea that someone in the midst of a fight or a battle holds their position. They're not going to be movable. You will be able to stand firm with all protection. The protection being what again? The full armor of God. Every last piece. It's not good enough to have one, two, three, whatever pieces, you know, but oh, I don't really need that one. I, I've got enough on. I'll set that one aside over here. No, he says you need the full armor, head to toe. The full armor of God. We can't leave out a piece and create vulnerabilities because the enemy is looking to exploit those vulnerabilities. David knew, he knew exactly where Goliath's weak spot was, right? Right there. That's what he had to hit. That was the target. Nothing else would do. So what does he do? He goes for that one spot, right? Satan knows what your weaknesses are. He knows your vulnerabilities. What's he going to do? He's going to go right after those. Right after those. He says this in verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now before you go, oh, I didn't think Satan could go to go to heaven, you know, God's realm. He's, he's talking about not so much where God resides, but the entire realm of, say, spiritual beings. Even when perverse and evil men are against us, whose will are they doing, friends? Because this is an interesting, an interesting uh, part of the passage here. That, that we're not against flesh and blood, right? Other people per se, it's all of these other spiritual things. And so again, you think, well, huh. If evil men 
who seem like they are against us, again, the question I pose to you is, whose will are they doing? In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26, Paul is referring to, to those who are in opposition, meaning to us as Christians, hoping, quote, they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the who? Devil. Having been held captive by him to do his will. That's all unbelievers, friends. Now, not to say that they aren't held responsible for their choices and actions. They are. But ultimately, the battles that we find ourselves in are not really against this flesh and blood, meaning people against people, but rather these battles are spiritual in nature. We are battling the rulers and the powers and the world forces of darkness and spiritual forces of wickedness that these people have submitted themselves to. This would be true of individuals. This would be true of organizations. I'm not going to mention any names, Planned Parenthood. Paul then summarizes for emphasis in verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And notice, too, that the purpose of taking up God's armor is primarily defensive, not so much offensive. The idea is we're going to stand firm. We're going to stand resolute as these things come at us. And we're yes, we're going to. We even pull out the sword if we have to, right? But it's primarily defensive. It's so you can hold your ground, not lose your position. It's not so you can go necessarily on the attack. It's rather so you can weather the storm. Now, he gets to these different pieces of armor. And for a third time, he says, stand firm. Why does somebody repeat themselves? For emphasis, right? Again, stand firm, stand firm, stand firm. If you count resist, we can say there's four times there, okay? Look at verse 14. He says, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. This is that that belt, right? It's a little funny phrase, gird your loins, right? Your loins right here, right? We're going to, with our belt, gird your loins with truth. It's quoting Isaiah 11 and verse 5, which says of the Messiah, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist in the greek septuagint faithfulness is then translated as truth so to gird your loins means to bind around the hip or the waist much like a belt where it most likely refers to a a part of a roman soldier's armor they would have an apron kind of deal you made with like leather thongs that would hang down all around protect their thighs and what is it we are told to bind ourselves with notice that this is the first thing on the list because it is really the foundation to all the other pieces truth you're to 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 put on that belt of truth what kind of truth god's truth god's authoritative objective truth that we find where right here in the pages of scripture Psalm 119 and 160 tells us the sum of your word is truth. John 17, 17 finds Jesus saying, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
let's face it, God's truth and authority, friends, is all but lost out there in the world. Wouldn't you agree? Now more than ever, truth is no longer objective. It's rather subjective, right? With that whole postmodern movement, we, we have this, well, truth is really whatever you want it to be. So truth is, is, is different for this person, and it might be different for this person, it might be different for this person, might be, and that's okay. It's all truth. No, it's not. When they, these two pieces of truth totally contradict, it's not all truth. But yes, we live in a time when everybody gets to make up their own truth. Truth is in the eye of the beholder, but not for the Christian who knows that God's truth, God's authority reigns supreme. They just do. As believers, we need to belt ourselves with the truth of God's word. It is this very authority that we trust in, authority that does not lie in human reason or feelings or experiences or organizations or political parties or social constructs and and certainly not in Satan, but only in God and his word. That is the sum of truth. This is where our confidence lies, friends. That when we are in battle with the enemy and his demons and those held captive by him doing his will, the most powerful being outside of God is, of course, Satan. We know then that we have the ultimate authority on our side. And that is then what enables you to stand firm. Next, he says, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Breastplate of righteousness. Again, Paul probably had in mind Isaiah 59 and verse 17, which has Isaiah writing about God coming to deliver his people and punish his enemies by saying, punishing their enemies. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. We'll we'll get to the helmet in just a bit. But the breastplate was that protective covering of metal for a Roman soldier, most likely chain mail. But nonetheless, it was for protecting the chest or the torso area. And how are we to understand the putting on then of righteousness? As believers, when we put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth, we now have a heart that can can and should display God's righteousness in our daily lives. We are to act, we are to behave rightly. That is in the way that we love God, that is in the way that we love other people, in the way that we just deal with people. Ephesians 5 and verse 1 tells us we are to be imitators of God. Our our life should exemplify walking in righteousness. Now, do you think Satan likes seeing us act and behave righteously? Of course not. He hates it. He is completely opposed to anything that is righteous in God's eyes. And so by wearing this breastplate of righteousness, believers will guard their hearts because that's what's behind that 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 uh, weaponry, right? It's your heart. We'll guard our hearts against the assaults of the evil one. I was thinking about this. I think we got to look no further 
than the breastplate of righteousness that Job wore. Job, he's a man described as being blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. He is a tremendous example of being able to stand firm against Satan's attacks. Next, look at verse 15. He says, And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. To shod your feet means to bind or fasten under with with straps. Back in the days, you'd have have the sole of a a sandal be made by uh, multiple layers of leather, maybe about three quarters of an inch thick. And then they would actually, for the soldier, have studs on the bottom, kind of like a, a cleat, you know, like the... Um, old metal spiked uh, baseball shoes or, or golf shoes. These were designed specifically for traction. Traction for that up-close, hand-to-hand kind of combat to keep your footing. And what are we to shot our feet with? He says the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's kind of a strange phrase. And there's some different ways that people have understood it. Um, kind of working backwards here. Let's talk about the gospel of peace. And then we'll see how that fits in with preparation or readiness. Of course, as you know, gospel means the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. It speaks of man's separation from God because of man's sin. And then, of course, man's reconciliation with God through the blood of his son. That is to say, his death followed by his resurrection, which therefore brings forgiveness of sins and that tremendous promise of eternal life. Because Jesus resurrected, we too will be resurrected. And of course, it's the gospel that brings the peace, right? We were once enemies with God, but then we are brought near through the blood of Christ. We can look back in the Old Testament and read in Isaiah 52 and verse 7, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. And so through the gospel of peace, there can now be that, again, reconciliation between God and man. Now, going back to the word preparation, this word also means readiness. How does this then tie in with this gospel of peace? And while some will see it in an evangelistic sense that we are prepared or ready to proclaim the gospel of peace, I believe the better understanding is that preparation or readiness is actually a result of the gospel of peace because then it is what enables the believer to stand firm. Stand firm. Remember, this whole passage is is about warfare. Warfare between believers and Satan. Paul is not talking about here in Ephesians 6 so much evangelism, but about fighting spiritual battles. So when we have peace with God, then we we can shod or put on our shoes of readiness that then enable us to stand firm, to hold our footing while we are grappling with the enemy. Next, continuing in verse 16. He says, in addition to all, Meaning those previously mentioned pieces of armor, taking up the shield of faith 
which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Friends, the idea here is not one of these, you know, little, you know, handheld things. Our kids had to, at some point, they, they had the armor of God you can get off the online, you know, those little little plastic pieces, and it had the sword, and it had the helmet, and it had, the, and it had a little shield, right? Uh-uh. Not the kind of shield that is being talking about here. This is a big, giant, solid shield, like, like yay high, made of thick wood beams glued together. It's giant. Uh, I remember it's, it's still around. When we were here previously, you got maybe some of you like to order the Big Papa pizza, you know? And, and there's a place, Big Mama or Big Papa Pizza, and they bring the pizza to your door. And literally, we were having a, a, a youth event at our, at, our, at our place here in Burbank uh, years ago. And so we ordered the Big Papa, and they bring it to the door, and they can't even fit the thing through the door. They have to go and go sideways to get it in because it's so huge. It's not some little wimpy 12-inch personal pizza. It's the Big Papa. That's what we got, the Big Papa of shields here, friends. It would have a, you know, like maybe four feet high, two and a half feet thick, six to eight inches thick, uh, four, four and a half feet, excuse me, four feet high, two and a half feet wide. And it would have a kind of a curved surface. They'd put calf skin on it. They'd uh, em- emboss it, the, put edges of metal on the top and bottom to bring some protection to it. And they would actually actually take the calf skin and, and soak it in water before going into battle because what's coming at them? Flaming arrows, javelins lit on fire. Thunk. So they would be behind the shield. That's why they had a shield bearer. They had one person moving the shield around for them. And then the the warrior would be behind it. I mean, could you imagine, you know, holding up some little hand-to-hand fighting shield against incoming flaming arrows? It's just not going to work. The shield of faith is the Christian's rock-solid, resolute faith. It believes in and trusts in the promises of God, confident that He will indeed protect you in the midst of battle. It is the shield of faith that allows the believer to be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The evil one, again, of referring to the devil, Satan, flaming arrows. And that could refer to anything kind of missile-like weaponry, right? Especially an arrow or a dart. But it can also refer to a spear or, or a sword or a javelin that would have the tip covered in pitch. And then, of course, like I said, lit on fire in hopes that it's going to actually ignite the shield. That's why they, they would then soak the shield, the, the calfskin, in, in, in water and whatnot. But you gotta, you got to think, too, that a shield that was on fire... Or one that had a nine-foot javelin sticking out of it is now not going to be as easy to maneuver around the battlefield, right? It's just not. So, you know, oftentimes then they'll just abandon the shield. But now you got a soldier who's unprotected. It was this uh, reason again, yes, they, they um, uh, soaked it in water. So hopefully it would extinguish the flame of anything that might land in it. Extinguish, put out. Likewise, your shield of faith when used will extinguish, will put out Satan's flaming arrows. What might these arrows look like in a spiritual sense? Well, how about temptations? Temptations. Temptation towards ungodly behavior, as described back in Ephesians chapter 4. 
Verses 25 to 31. Things like falsehood, deception, lies, sinful or unresolved anger, unwholesome or wicked words. Anything that would grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Things like bitterness and wrath and slander and clamor and malice. And there's also things like pride, doubt, anxiety, despair and greed. Flaming arrows can be any thing that Satan might throw at us to to get us to abandon that shield of faith. Things like persecutions and afflictions, sufferings, false teaching. That's only a partial list. Sin trusts Satan, friends, and doubts God. Therefore, we need the shield of faith. We need to believe in and trust the, again, rock-solid promises of God. The fact that He loves us. And you know what? When your faith is put to the test and you stand firm in it, guess what happens? It grows stronger, doesn't it? It's just like working out in the gym. You start working out, next thing you know, as time goes on, more workouts, your muscles get strengthened. The more times you are put to the test in regard to your faith and you stand firm, then that faith is that much more solid the next time. Look at verse 17. He says back in our Ephesians 6, take the helmet of salvation. The helmet and then, of course, the sword we'll get to in just a sec will be the last two pieces of armor that the soldier would deal with. The helmet would be kind of held on to until the last moment, right? It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be hot in there. So he finally dons the helmet of salvation, certainly making reference to Isaiah 59, 17, where Yahweh, as the victorious warrior, has a helmet of salvation on his Head. And you think, again, what, a, what an awesome thing that believers actually get God's very own helmet. God wears this helmet of salvation. We get the helmet of salvation. Salvation uh, means that this helmet now worn as or by the believer is salvation itself. First Thessalonians 5 and verse 8 says, but since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation, the promise of salvation. This is eternal security, friends. As Ephesians 2, 5 and 6 tell us, it's something already accomplished for believers by God's grace. It is a done deal. We have been made alive with Christ. We have been raised up and we are, in a sense, already seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ. This is, this is incredible news, friends. This is amazing news. Paul is, is perfectly clear about the fact that God has, has rescued believers, rescued them from death and wrath and bondage, and he's transferred them to a new dominion in which Christ rules and as we live in light of this this new status in christ and as our salvation is sanctifyingly worked out then we as believers have every reason to be confident and assured of the outcomes of our battles 
As soldiers in the army of the Lord, we can feel absolutely 100% safe and secure with that helmet of salvation on. When we're in the midst of war or conflict. And then lastly in verse 17. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, right? The Word of God. I remember being in seminary and I had gone in to see uh, one of the administrators. And uh, I had my Bibles, asked him some questions. And, and I left it on his desk and I walked away and he goes, uh, aren't you forgetting something? I said, what? He goes, your sword. It's like, my sword? <laughs> I didn't come up with, oh, yeah. yeah. He hands me my Bible. I was like, oh, sweet. Yeah, I don't think I even learned that, had learned that passage yet, you know, so there you go. The sword of the Spirit. Oh, now i got to get back to Ephesians, huh? Oh, going the wrong way. There we go. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword here, sword back then for, for this, uh, for this um, Roman in his, uh, in his full armor, double-edged blade, maybe two inches wide, two feet long unsheathed at the sight of the approaching enemy. It was a cut and thrust weapon for up-close confrontations. And what's awesome about the sword mentioned here in the text is that this one, friends, this one is empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's why it's called the Sword of the Spirit, capital S. And this is what would be needed for spiritual Warfare, a piece of weaponry that is Holy Spirit infused. As Paul says, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Paul is stressing the actual speaking forth of God's Word, probably having in mind a passage like Isaiah 49 2, where it says, He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. A classic example of this, of course, is when Jesus was tempted out in the desert by the devil himself. And the devil would just, you know, attack and attack. And he's throwing those flaming arrows of temptation. Tell this stone to become bread. I will give you all this dominion and its glory. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. And all Jesus did was defend himself with what? The sword of the spirit. Right? Sword of the Spirit. When he said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. We don't have time to examine the last three verses of this passage, verses 18 to 20. But we mentioned them last week. They're all about prayer and and the need for prayer. You know what? Just I'm going to just read it. He says, with all prayer and petition, this is verse 18, pray at all times in the Spirit, capital S, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly As I ought to speak. I know we read that last week, but it's good to read it again. Prayer that shows your trust and reliance and dependence on the Lord and therefore rescues you, strengthens you, protects you 
against the evil one. And then lastly, just to wrap this up, all of this, friends, we're going back to it, is by our faithful Lord. Going back to our Thessalonians text, we see that we can have total and complete faith in the Lord because he himself is faithful. It is one of his attributes. If he was not faithful, if he was not altogether trustworthy, he would not be God. He wouldn't be. Deuteronomy 7 verse 9 tells us, Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 24, we had read, Faithful is He who calls you, and He also will bring it to pass. Your salvation is sure. Hebrews 10 and verse 23 tells us that God is faithful to carry out all of his promises. And appropriate for our text today of rescuing and strengthening and protecting amidst persecutions, afflictions and sufferings would be 1 Peter 4.19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. How about we end with Lamentations? Lamentations 3, verses 22 to 23. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. For His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. What's this last phrase? Great is your faithfulness. Friends, trust that God will rescue you. He will strengthen you. He will protect you. There are things that He calls upon us to do as well, like put on the full armor of God. But He is a faithful God. Is He not? Let's pray. Father God, thank You for being that faithful God. Thank you, Lord, for the armor that you give us. I pray, Lord, I pray that we would we would be so ready to put that armor on, the full armor. And Lord, I pray, I pray too for anyone here that needs that helmet of salvation, that they need to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they would put their faith and trust and hope in Him right now, Lord, that they would just, even while we're standing, pray or sitting, pray a prayer of repentance and just uh, acknowledging their sin before You, a holy God, and knowing and trusting in Jesus Christ and what He accomplished on the cross to bring forgiveness to them. And not just forgiveness, but that guarantee of eternal life through His resurrection from the dead. Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.